Greetings once again, my Chin Aida listeners, one and all. Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast. By the time we finish with today's topic, we'll be just a tad over two centuries away from that demarcation point of A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. The B.C. days will soon be coming to a close. We're going to look at the other half of the Zhou dynasty today. Well, almost half. The Eastern Zhou lasted, well, depending on who you ask, 770 to 256 B.C. That's about 515 years. Last week, we looked at the Western Zhou, which preceded this period, only had about mm, half the longevity of the Eastern Zhou. If you recall from the previous podcast, I gave a brief overview of the Zhou, and you might remember the Eastern Zhou was divided up into two time periods. Uh, Some of the most core of core values in the Chinese-speaking world started growing during this time in China. This was the time of all the great philosophers, Confucius included. It was the golden age of feudalism and a time when iron was revolutionizing how people lived and prospered in their ordinary daily lives. The various states spread out over the four provinces adjacent to the Yellow River yielded some of the greatest stories and legends from ancient China. Even to this day, when you walk down the streets of Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, Beijing, or even any Chinatown, all kinds of icons, gods, heroes, and sages, and so many have a connection to the eight centuries that the Zhou kings reigned. They reigned, but they only ruled for maybe a couple of those centuries, and that's being generous. So today we look at the Eastern Zhou period that, again, ran from 770 to 256 BC. Now, I'm going to interchange the terms Eastern Zhou and Spring and Autumn and Warring States uh, periods. The former term was comprised of the latter two. So, what else was going on in the world? Quite a lot. Uh, Zoroaster, Solon, Gautama Buddha, Socrates, Plato, Herodotus, Sophocles, Aristotle, Thucydides, Pythagoras, Hippocrates, the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, the Persian Empire and their amazing king, Cyrus the Great. And speaking of great, Alexander the Great triumphed during the time of the Warring States period. The birth of the Roman Republic... In fact, the First Punic War is already raging between Carthage and Rome when the Zhou dynasty begins to breathe its last. A lot of stuff going on in the East and the West, and record-keeping kept getting better by the day. Pretty much from this point forward, there are plenty of historical records that have survived to modern times. A lot has been lost, too. But there's less and less guessing about dates and who wrote or said what and when was this battle or that change of regime or this treaty. As I mentioned, this period was divided almost evenly between the spring and autumn period from 770 to 476 B.C. and the Warring States period from 475 to 221 B.C. 221 B.C., of course, being the date when Qin Shi Huangdi finally defeats all these other states in China or what comprised China back then, is united under one single emperor. And for this, Qin Shi Huangdi, the Qin Emperor, is remembered as the historical figure from whose name we get the word China. Now, the Zhou Dynasty itself died out in 256 BC, 35 years before the Qin was founded, but we'll get to that later. Now, why the names of this period? The Spring and Autumn and Warring States. Spring and Autumn came from the Chunqiu, or the Spring and Autumn Annals, which chronicled the state of Lu in what is today southern Shandong province. This historical text covered the goings-on in the Lu state from 770 to 481 BC. This is the earliest historical text in China that chronicles a time period year by year. 
That's why scholars call the work the Spring and Autumn Annals. Confucius was credited with writing or editing this text. He resided in the Lu State, and all Shandong people who live in the land that was the former Lu State share this special closeness with the great sage. Even today, in the 21st century, when you're driving in that beautiful coastal province where Qingdao is located, you still see the Lu character on the license plate to designate that this car or truck or whatever is registered in Shandong province. You still see that linkage to the ancient Chinese state that developed in that land three millennia before. Now, without the help of the commentaries of Zuo, the Zuo Zhuan, it would be quite tedious and iffy to comprehend the Chunqiu. These commentaries went chapter by chapter, and while not exactly a Rosetta Stone or anything, it really brought these ancient texts to light. The Chunqiu, along with Sima Qian's record of the Grand Historian, make up some of the most important sources for the Bronze and Early Iron Age period in China. During this spring and autumn period, you had about oh, 148 states left that slowly consolidated down to about 30. The second phase of the Eastern Zhou period saw these 30 states dissolve down to about 7. And these 7 battled each other during what was known as the Zhang Guo Shi Dai, or the Warring States Period. Once again, the name derived from the definitive text of that period, the Warring States Annals, or Zhang Guo Ci. This was a chronological work like the Chunqiu, and it was a veritable fount of information regarding the battles, diplomacy, social customs, and intellectual character of this period. There were 256 wars that raged during the last four centuries of the Eastern Zhou. The Zhou Dynasty kings stood by, toothless and often disrespected by some, and frequently challenged. They became pawns in all these battles for hegemony between the competing states that surrounded the Zhou lands. The whole tone of the spring and autumn period and of the eastern Zhou is set almost from the get-go, as the Zhou kings are challenged directly by the powers from the state of Zheng, not too far from the new capital in Luoyang. They pushed the Zhou around plenty and took advantage of their weakness to basically get their own people in a position of power. The first Zhou king of the spring and autumn period was King Ping, who was inserted into power by the states of Zheng and Jin. The most famous leader of this period, Zheng Zhuanggong, a.k.a. Duke Zhuang of the state of Zheng, through his brute force of arms and might, ruled in the name of the Zhou kings up to 701 B.C., the Zheng state was a flash in the pan, and once Zheng Zhuanggong died, this whole state fell apart, and then it was replaced by the greatest of them all, or at least for a while, the state of Qi in the northern part of present-day Shandong. When you talk about the Qi state, you have to mention Du Quan, or Qi Huanggong, and his capable and superb minister, Guan Zhong. Now, Du Quan's story is well documented about how he came to prominence and ultimately got elected as the first of the five hegemons, or Wu Ba, of the spring and autumn period. The hegemons, well, they had hegemony over the less powerful states of the spring and autumn period. And of course, the hegemons dominated the Zhou kings, who remained pawns of whoever was the one pulling the strings at the time. The Qi are given great credit for building strong Chinese institutions on top of the foundation that had been laid during the Western Zhou. Let's focus for a minute on Guangzhou, who Duke Huan had handpicked to become the prime minister. It's one of those great stories how Guangzhou came into the employ of Duke Huan, but for now we'll just focus on his achievements. 
He was a master organizer, Guan Zhong was. It was Guan Zhong who made the transition from bronze to iron and promoted iron weapons and tools. He raised revenues for the state by instituting a government monopoly on salt and iron. The Qi became a very rich and well-ordered state during the spring and autumn period. Guan Zhong is also credited with stabilizing the currency, putting in place a uniform and fair tax code, and in general ushered in one of the models of efficient administration. Guan Zhong selected talented administrators from the aristocrats and bureaucrats rather than using the old tried-and-true methods of promoting within the family alone. It was just a golden and flourishing time in that part of China. Confucius allegedly said of Guan Zhong, quote, Down to the present day, the people enjoy the gifts which he conferred. But for Guan Zhong, we would now be wearing our hair disheveled and our lappets of our coat buttoned on the left, meaning the people of Qi would be like barbarians who, back then, buttoned their garments on the left-hand side. In such high esteem did the great sage hold Guan Zhong. It was Guan Zhong who said in so many words, make people economically well-off and ensure them a stable life and educate them in the rights and to respect the rulers. It worked well in China for a long time. The rise of the Shi, or the knightly class, was another phenomenon of the spring and autumn and warring states periods. The Shi were all those generations of offspring who came from the people who served the kings, served the princes, and assorted royalty and other nobility. They were the men-at-arms, those who wrote and preserved documents, uh, experts, and many branches of knowledge. They, they weren't noblemen, but were essential to the nobility for their cleverness and their industry. This class of Shi were the first executive officials in China, and from them sprang the bureaucrats that almost defined the imperial court in China for another 3,000 years. Once Guan Zhong and Duke Huan passed from the scene, the Qi starts to decline. You know, there are so many stories and sidebars to the Chunqiu and Zhangguo periods. Rather than delve into them here, I'm going to save a bunch of these stories for uh, future podcasts. We're sort of flying over Chinese history here at 10,000 feet and not focusing in on too much uh, detail. We'll get the overview first before we get into more detail with all these fascinating periods. I'm just going to glide past some of the other kings, hegemons, and heroes, and we're going to stop and look at... Oh, well, another of the five hegemons, Lord Wen of Jin, Jin Wen Ho. He lived from 697 to 628 BC. He was known in history as Chong'er. Uh, there were two physical deformities attributed to Chong'er, both of them perhaps misconstrued or something else. But the words Chong'er translate to double-eared. He's one of the central characters of the Zuo Zhuan, or the commentaries of Zuo, which chronicles the Chunqiu period. Chong'er was the son of the ruler of the Jin state, located mostly north of the Yellow River in Shanxi. Through a concatenation of bad luck, he's forced to flee into exile in 655 BC and goes on this 19-year odyssey, traveling from kingdom to kingdom and facing all kinds of hardships along the way, but he gains fame and a hard-earned reputation as a wise and just man, and upon his return to the state of Jin in 636 BC, brother conveniently dies, and he becomes the next Duke of Jin, and goes down in history as Jin Wengong. One of the first things he does is restore the Zhou king to the throne after he had been dumped in favor of uh, the king of some other state, 
uh, trying to rule as head of the Zhou. Then 634 BC, you have the Battle of Changpu, where the forces of the great and mighty Chu kingdom invade and are repelled. And this battle is the first in Chinese history that is recorded in enough detail for generations of military scientists, strategists, and historians to study and understand the entirety of this engagement on the battlefield. It's the biggest battle detailed in the Zhuquan. And after Jin Wengong's forces defeated the Chu, he was regaled by the Zhou king as the savior of Zhongguo, meaning the, the central state, or more specifically, the Zhou. Now, pretty much the rest of the world refers to China as, well, China. Lexin, Kina, Xina. But in China, they call their country Zhongguo. Zhong means center, central. Guo means kingdom or country, the middle kingdom. So Chong'er, or Duke Wen of Jin, he becomes the first savior of Zhongguo. For his good deed, the Zhou king makes Jin Wengong a, a hegemon, or a ba. This sort of made him the overlord of all the various states that still paid lip service to the Zhou kings and their ancestors. Chong'er, or Duke Wen, died in 628 BC. The state of Jin makes a big comeback under Duke Wen, and he is remembered for his great help to the poor and the common people, and for promoting good and capable administrators in the Jin government. Another state was growing in power during this time as we transitioned from spring and autumn to the Warring States period that began around 475 BC. This was the state of Wu, or the Wu Guo. Boy, did they ever sit on primo real estate. The Wu state was situated north and south of the mouth of the Yangtze River in what is today the top of the pop's best real estate in China in Jiangsu, Zhejiang province, which also comprises Shanghai. The capital of the Wu state was where Suzhou is located today. Now, the Wu state was soundly supported by the Jin state in an alliance against the state of Chu just west of the Wu and south of the Jin. So the Wu kings owe a lot to the support of the Jin state to get where they got. Ah, but the Chu state, they made alliances with the Yue state to the south of Wu in present-day Zhejiang. Their capital was in Shaoxing, where today we get the famous Shaoxing wine. And although the Wu caused trouble and destruction for the Chu, the Yue ultimately did them in to become top of the charts for a while. I mean, this is how it was. You continued to have the Zhou state sort of in the center of things, and no one takes them seriously as a power, but they stay relevant for the ceremonial roles they played and the authority that was still vested in them as son of heaven. States were constantly at war with each other, and not to oversimplify everything, but that's the way it goes until 221 BC when Qin Shi Huang puts down the last remaining state and by his incredibly repressive ways puts all these pieces together and creates one single Chinese nation. Well, for at least a while. Now, the Warring States period, well, according to some sources, really began with the partition of the Jin state into three smaller kingdoms. This is known as the Fun Jin. The, the mighty Jin was sliced up into the states of Zhao, Wei, and Han. Now, remember, most of what we know is coming from the Zhangguozi, or the strategies of the warring states, written right around the beginning of the Han dynasty during the first century BC. Once again, it gives a blow-by-blow -blow account of every single battle that went on between every state during this period. Let's jump ahead to the king of Wu, He Lu. He was another great reformer of his kingdom, uh, the Wu, and he had this capable and exceedingly loyal general, Wu Zixu, and this amazing military strategist named Sun Wu. 
Uh, he Lu and his brilliant military commanders annihilated the Chu kingdom and sacked their capital. But the Yue, remember them, they attacked the Wu while He Lu was away attacking the Chu, and everyone was attacking everyone, but the guy who was really getting the strongest were the ones all the way out west, the Qin state. Anyways, this strategist Sun Wu, who served under He Lu, was none other than Sun Tzu, or Sun Tzu, as he's known in the oft-mispronounced Wei Giles system of romanization. More about him some other day. Since antiquity, China has led the world in constructing the most intricate and elaborate timekeeping and astronomical devices. So I wanted to tell you about one luxury watch brand, Atelier Wen. They demonstrate high-quality Chinese design and craftsmanship in a single timepiece. And their watches celebrate Chinese culture and craftsmanship. Atelier Wen works with China's best designers and craftsmen of today to bring their collection of beautiful luxury watches proudly made in China. Atelier Wen's perception watch model draws from the exquisite geometries found in traditional Chinese architecture. Each dial is individually hand-cut by China's only Guilloche master craftsman, Cheng Yutsai, who engineered his rose engine machine himself. Due to its complexity, it takes a master craftsman around eight hours to cut one dial. And there were no guilloche machines in China before, and Master Chung had to figure out how to build one without access to any Western prototypes or drawings. Check out AtelierWen.com to view their collections and to learn more about Chinese watchmaking. You can mention the CHP at checkout to let them know we sent you. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-E-N dot com to see their impressive collections. The Atelier Wen Perception Watch will make a special gift for yourself or for someone passionate about fine, unique watches. Well, during the Warring States period, the number of states had melted down to seven. Uh, They were Qi, Chu, Yan, Han, Wei, Zhao, and Qin. Well, maybe eight states if you include Yue all the way down to the south. I guess the most famous aspect to come out of the spring and autumn and warring states period would have to be the Zhuzi Baijia, or the Hundred Schools of Thought. First and foremost was Confucius. In Chinese, he's known as Kongzi. He goes by many names, among them Kongfuzi, which is basically means Master Kong. And from Kongfuzi, we get Confucius. Tradition calls his date of birth as September 28, 551 B.C. This was about the same exact time as the birth of uh, Siddhartha Gautama, who went on to found Buddhism. Confucius's death has been slotted at 479 B.C., which on a timeline puts his life right at the tail end of the uh, spring and autumn period. We're going to just look at the history of these great sages rather than explore their philosophy. Later on, we'll have a series where we maybe spend a half hour or so on each of the philosophers and what their main tenets were of uh, their thought. Thirteen great works that comprise the foundation, the pillars, and I guess everything you may as well throw in the walls and the roof as well, of Chinese philosophy. Everything came out of the spring and autumn and warring states period. These thirteen were, first, the Chunqiu and Zhuan, which we mentioned already, the spring and autumn annals, which went hand in hand with the chronicles of Zhuo, the Chuan, who explained them all and from which we learned so much about that period. Second, you had the Zhangguozi, which we also touched on, the Warring States Annals. This gave the best account of all the blood that flowed during the two and a half centuries of the Warring States period. 
third was the Lunyu, the Analects of Confucius, which were written by the disciples of Confucius not too long after his death. The work comprises his most core philosophy and beliefs, not to mention all the sayings which are attributed to this greatest of sages. The Lunyu make up one of the four books, or the Sishu, that gave us the philosophy, moral values, and propriety that formed the backbone of what became known in China and in parts of Asia who were within China's sphere of influence as Confucianist values. Next came Mengzi, known as Mengxis. He was the most famous of the disciples of Confucius. He's pegged at 372 to 289 BC, which doesn't exactly line up with some of the dates given to the life and death of his master, Confucius. Most likely he was a disciple of Confucius's grandson, or someone who followed Confucius uh, from the House of Kong. Mengzi is credited with saying that the basic goodness and decency of the individual was influenced by the society he grew up in. Therefore, if society was immoral and corrupt, the individual would be, too. Mengzi, by the way, was a contemporary of Plato. As Plato sort of interpreted Socrates, so did Mengzi uh, interpret Confucius. His great work is eponymous and has come down to us simply as the Mengxis, or the Mengzi. And with this work, he made his humble contribution to the philosophy of Confucianism. Next, you had Mozi, who, like Confucius and Mengzi, hailed from the state of Lu in today's Shandong province. He is the founder of Moism, or Mojia. Mojia rivaled Confucianism. Together with Taoism, Confucianism, and Legalism, Mojia made up the four main philosophical schools of thought during this Eastern Zhou period. Mozi's thought was critical of Confucian and Taoist thought, but after the Qin Emperor did his burn the books thing and suppressed all the schools of thought save Legalism, and then after the Han Dynasty adopted Confucianism as the state philosophy of sorts, Mozi, he got relegated to the seat behind the back seat in that big SUV of Chinese philosophy. So he isn't as well known as the front row characters like Laozi, Kongzi, Mengzi. Next up was Han Feizi, who gave us legalism. This philosophy was the centerpiece of the Qin dynasty. We talked about legalism a little in the first podcast on Qin Shi Huang. This philosophy was the centerpiece of the Qin dynasty. We talked about legalism a little in the first podcast on Qin Shi Huang. It called for a strong central authority and, as the name suggests, enforced society's order through strict adherence of laws. The Guanzi was another work that made up the core of Chinese philosophy as developed during the Eastern Zhou period. This was written by the great administrator Guan Zhong, who we discussed before and who did his great work under the direction of Duke Huan of the Qi State. His great work was sort of a sort of an encyclopedia of the times that looked at all the philosophical thought of his day, which was mostly Taoism, Legalism, and Confucianism. The eighth work, well, we haven't discussed Lao Tzu much, if at all. No one knows when he lived or if he ever lived. Most historians believe uh, this writer of the Tao Te Ching was a composite made up of multiple people and not just a single historical person. The Tao Te Ching is the central work of Taoism. This is a long podcast in and of itself, so we won't get into Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching here. But he was another of the historical figures who lived during this extremely fertile period in Chinese history. Perhaps... Almost as famous as Mengzi would be the great skeptic Zhuangzi. 
He's the one who said, life is limited, but knowledge is unlimited. His great work has come down to us like that of Mengzi. Uh, it's simply known as the Zhuangzi. Again, like the others just named and the ones to follow, he came out at the same time period that we covered in this podcast. Sunzi, a.k.a. Sun Tzu, uh, he too lived during this period, and his Art of War, or Sun Tzu Bingfa, was also written during this time. Well, some of it. This is another very long and interesting topic. Go check out the Ancient World podcast on iTunes by a chap named Kurt Watkins. He has a nice intro to Sun Tzu. We'll feature the great military strategist again in some future episode here. The 11th of the 13 great and definitive works of this Eastern Zhou period was the Guoyu. It's known in English, to those who even know of it, as the Discourses of the States, and like the Chunqiu and the Zhangguozi, it acts as a fount of information about the goings-on between the various states of the time, mostly the Western Zhou period, which we covered in the uh, last podcast. Number 12 and 13 are the Chuzi, or the Songs of Chu, and the Xunzi. The Songs of Chu were a collection of poems partly credited to someone named Chu Yuan. It was Chu Yuan whose protest against the corruption and injustices of the Chu king led him to commit suicide. And from this act, we get Duan uh, Wu Jie, or the Dragon Boat Festival, which many of you have perhaps heard of. Uh, the Xunzi, well, like Mengzi, Zhuangzi, Muozi, Hanfeizi, it was named after the philosopher who wrote it. He was a Confucian disciple who believed man could improve himself through education and adherence to rituals. I'm sure between now and forever we'll feature all these great sages from the Eastern Zhou period on podcasts yet to come. We're already sort of running late, and we still have to finish off the Zhou dynasty. Uh, well, the Warring States period was indeed a chaotic time with an endless battling between the rising and falling powers and nail-biting diplomacy. But amidst all this luan, or chaos, of the period, you had all the disciples of Confucius and all these other schools of thought flourish. It was a time when you had advances in Chinese medicine, irrigation, agriculture, the fine arts, natural philosophy, and the occult. The population of China by this time was estimated around 20 million. The last years of the Zhou sort of played second fiddle to the real story going on in China at this time. This was the story of the rise of the Qin state. They were the westernmost of all the states and were sort of looked down upon as a little rough around the edges and, you know, least of all the kingdoms to have absorbed all the education and reforms found in the more eastern kingdoms. Then, during the reign of Lord Xiao of Qin, there was a very useful and talented nobleman named Shangyang, who was to Lord Xiao what Guan Zhong was to Duke Huan of Qi. He was responsible for many critical reforms in the Qin state that made them stronger, more organized, more sophisticated, better administered. The only problems was that all these reforms came at the expense of the various feudal lords. You see, that was what the Qin state was all about. They were more, they, more than anyone else, embraced the philosophy of legalism and rising through the ranks by merit rather than from your blood relationship to the king or some nobleman. When Qin Shi Huang created the empire, one of the first things he did was take all the power away from these feudal lords and made everyone directly dependent on the state for their lands and their official positions. No more of this hereditary stuff. 
Anyways, we discussed all this in the very first podcast episode. I may re-upload that one to keep the continuity going of this, uh, of this period. So the Qin are on the rise thanks to the reforms of Shangyang, who met sort of a premature end in 338 BC once his benefactor, Lord Xiao, died. No friend of the Qin nobility. Once his protector was gone, the nobles made fast work of Shangyang. But despite this, his reforms lived on, and once Qin Shi Huang took power, that was the bitter end of the golden age of feudalism in China. Well, by 338 BC, the Zhou, they only had 80 years left before the Qin swept them from power. The last of the Zhou kings, Zhou Nanwang, he put all his chips on the wrong horse and was allied against the Qin when the Qin subdued all the Zhou king's allies. He, too, had no choice but to offer his kingdom to the unstoppable Qin forces. And once this happened, in 256 BC, that was the end of the Zhou. 790 years. Then it took another 35 years for the Qin to defeat the remaining kingdoms. And in 221 BC, you have the founding of the Qin dynasty. Well, to squeeze the Western and Eastern Zhou period into two measly podcasts is a tall order, if there ever was one. We're sort of taking a general survey of the dynasties right now, and the plan is to keep doing this for a while, and then once we've completed this, then we'll go back and cover many of the specifics. Wow, you know, writing these shows on the dynasties is getting harder and harder. There's so much more information the later you go. We've done the Xia, the Shang, the West and East Zhou. We did the Qin a few months ago. The Western Han is up next with a short one on uh, Wang Meng and the brief Xing dynasty. Then the Eastern Han, Three Kingdoms. Oh, a long way to go before we're talking about the Xinghai Geming. So I deeply thank everyone for sticking with me this far. Today, my friends, I am signing off from a scorching hot Claremont, California. Folks, no kidding. It's 110 degrees outside right now in centigrade. That comes to 43 degrees. I just checked. It's hotter here than in Vegas. It's, it's even hotter than Baker, California, home of the world's tallest thermometer. But it's going to be 110 tomorrow in Mecca, so I shouldn't feel like I'm suffering alone. Take care, everyone, and if you're thirsting for more details about this period we discussed today, rest assured we're going to come back another day, a cooler day, I hope, and revisit and take a closer look at some of the fascinating historical personages of this time, as well as their great works. Visit me anytime at the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. Send an email, read my blog that I haven't updated since September 3rd. Take care, everyone.